I want to turn our attention tonight to the book of Acts. Now, I want to take some time. If you've seen uh, the Bible reading plan that they handed out, you'll see that, uh, and it's easy to catch up. Don't, it's a chapter a day, five days a week. The weekends don't have anything penciled into them. If, if you need to catch up, not a big deal, totally manageable. But you'll see that on the basis of what Bishop set us out doing on Sunday night, uh, we would read Acts chapter 1 on Monday, Acts 2 Tuesday, and Acts 3 today. So I'm not going to go any further today than Acts chapter 3. But I do want to take us on a little bit of a tour through the book of Acts and get us acquainted with what this book is all about. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And once you get to the end of the Old Testament, to the end of the book of Malachi... Then you turn the page and suddenly you're in the New Testament and you're in the book of Matthew. you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts. Acts is the fifth book. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are Gospels, so they're, the longer title of them is the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Luke, and so on. These are the records that people in the first century, some of them apostles, some of them disciples, uh, they went and they gathered eyewitness accounts of what happened during the life and teaching of Jesus. Some of them were their own eyewitness accounts. They compiled them together, and that's the record we have of the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's pretty incredible that we have not just one version uh, from one vantage point, but we have four different vantage points where we get to see what happened during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ during his time with us on the earth. And then you get out of those first four, first four books, and you get to the fifth book of the New Testament, which is the book of Acts. The longer title would be the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, this is where we make a transition between Jesus being on the scene with his disciples and Jesus uh, setting his disciples loose in the earth to be about their heavenly Father's business. The other handout you received uh, in addition to the reading plan, is a map. And that is for a very particular purpose. If you've ever read through the book of Acts before, you know that there are a whole lot of locations, a lot of different geographical locations, places. So it's helpful uh, with the book of Acts, maybe more than any other book in the New Testament, to read it and have a map. How many has maps in the back of their Bible? Okay, uh, I studied those maps when I was a kid because I probably was bored in church. I don't know, but I, they were colorful, Sister Amber, and I liked looking at them. They had squiggly arrows going everywhere. A lot of those maps in the back of your Bible pertain to the activity in the book of Acts because there's all kinds of action in the book of Acts, and they're going all these different places, and so it's helpful, and I've tried to help you. Uh, you'll notice on one side of that map's handout, it's the ancient world. It's the world as the first century Christians would have known it. It's different locations uh, and different types. It's laid out the way that they would have known their world in the book of Acts. On the back side of that, it's the same exact map. It's just everything in present day. So it's got modern day boundaries of modern day nations. So you can kind of really, you can start to get your bearings a little bit um, and say like, oh, okay, that's in Greece, or that's in Italy, or that's in Israel, or that's in Syria, or, and you get the idea. So hopefully that helps. I want to start in Acts chapter 1. I found it always helpful to start in the first chapter of a book. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So I, I, I'm going to do it a little differently than I have before. I'd like to almost just lead us on a little bit of a forced march through the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. And I want to address some points of interest, some things that as I was reading this, I was trying to read it with fresh eyes this week, and I was trying to jot down some questions that I might have if it were my first time really taking a hard look at the book of Acts. 
So I want to address some of those things as we go. In just those three verses, I came up with a few points of interest and observations that I want to pause on. Because what happens in these first few verses of this book sets the stage for everything that's going to come. So who can tell me who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So what does he mean when he says the former account I made? The very first words of the book, the former account. Well, he's talking about the gospel of Luke. So the same Luke that wrote the gospel of Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. So a very helpful way of understanding the Acts of the Apostles is to understand it as volume 2. The Gospel of Luke is volume 1. The Acts of the Apostles is volume 2. And so that's exactly where Luke picks up. Acts was written by Luke. He gathered eyewitness accounts. He put that account together. And then he moved on to the Acts of the Apostles. And he took the same approach. Some of what we read in the book of Acts is actually what Luke himself witnessed and experienced. Some of it, Luke may have not been present for, but he went and he got reliable eyewitness accounts from people like Simon Peter, people like Paul, people like James, people like John. And he went and he gathered them together, he recorded them, and he put them together in this book for us. It says that when Jesus was there, before he was taken up, says that he presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many infallible proofs. What's Luke talking about when he says many infallible proofs? He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about a lot of other things that Jesus fulfilled. Basically, that's the shorthand way of saying Jesus during his time with the apostles after his resurrection, spent time shoring up the foundations of their understanding that he had completely fulfilled the Old Testament by many infallible proofs. And we could spend weeks and weeks digging, combing our way through the Old Testament and matching up Old Testament prophecies with things that Jesus did in his life and making all those connections. That's exactly what Jesus did between him being resurrected, and him ascending to heaven. He explained by how many infallible proofs he was the Messiah. He had, in fact, fulfilled the entire Old Testament. There's a, a number mentioned in these first three verses. It's 40 days, 40 days. It's right there in verse 3. Being seen by them as the chronology, the timeline is really, really important. Bishop talks about this a lot. He talks about it a lot for good reason. Because for many people, this is a key to understanding the new birth experience and the message that was preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So, connecting the dots here with the timeline is really easy. But it's something people miss all the time. And here's why. Because of the break between the Gospels and Acts. Sometimes we view them independently and we fail to connect the dots of what the timeline looked like, what Jesus' message to his disciples actually was, and why it matters at the day of Pentecost. Let me explain to you what I mean. Right before Jesus ascended to heaven, one of the final things he taught, he commanded his disciples, was this. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Then we read just a little while later. 50 days later, that Simon Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost 
And after preaching a message, he gets asked the question, what should we do? How can we put this into action? He gives them the famous answer that you can probably quote. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. How? In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And people look at that and they see that it feels like there's a disconnect between what Jesus said and what Simon Peter said. And sometimes they can look and they say, well, if I have to choose one or the other, I'm going with what Jesus said. And there's only 50 days between what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and what Simon Peter and the rest of the apostles preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And if, and you know, you've probably heard the argument, but when Jesus told them how to baptize, he told them baptize in the name, singular. And what is that name? It's the name of Jesus, which is exactly the message that Simon Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost. And if he had been out of bounds or out of order, somebody who had been there with Jesus would have corrected him because it's a very important piece of information. It's a very important message. Somebody would have stood up and said, Simon Peter, you're all, you, you're, I agree with everything you've said so far, but you're missing this one thing. That's not actually what Jesus said. But nobody did that. Nobody did that. Because there was an understanding that when Jesus gave that command in Matthew 28, he was commanding them to do things in his name, in the name of Jesus. Now, I said a moment ago when we were reviewing one of the keystone things that we have to do when we're studying the Bible is we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's what we just did. We just let Scripture interpret. You see how important that is? That's how you arrive at a conclusion. It's something that you can ground your convictions on when you say, you know what? These two things don't seem to match. I'm going to study it out a little bit more. And you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And you arrive at something that's concrete that you can plant your feet on, that you can establish yourself on, and you can make a doctrine out of it. And that's what we've done. We believe that you must be baptized in the name of Jesus. We believe that's a doctrine that the Word of God teaches, but it also teaches us that very same thing in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Are there any questions? I want to pause. I told you we were going on a little bit of a forced march, but I do want to stop. I also wanted to get a drink. My starting point for that entire diatribe there was chronology, was the timeline. We must understand that even though we turn our page in the Bible and we go from the Gospels to Acts, that there isn't any time that elapses between the two. That when you turn the page and you're looking into Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still on the scene here. He hasn't ascended yet. He's going to in just a few verses. It's been 40 days that he's been with them. He came out of the tomb. He's been with them for 40 days. He's fixing to ascend to heaven. And the very last thing Jesus tells them, among other things, is to stay in Jerusalem and they stay there for 10 days in a prayer meeting. 40 plus 10 is 50. 50 days total. And then the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Ghost is poured out. And the message is preached in Acts chapter 2. So we don't have a long time between the two. And when you understand the timeline and the continuity, it helps you understand what's taking place. And we need to be able to describe that to somebody because there's many people that are confused about it. And there's many people that believe a confusing message about the new birth experience and what the new birth is and what the new birth isn't. And one of the best ways to help clear that up for people when you're teaching a Bible study is to have the ability to describe some of the things that we've just talked about in the last few moments, the timeline that these are the chain of events that took place that culminated in Simon Peter standing up and saying, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and receive the Holy Ghost. 
If you're able to do that, you would be amazed at how many eyes get opened. Verse 3 says that during these 40 days, he talked to him about many infallible proofs and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This isn't a trick question. What is the kingdom of God? It's all over the place in the Gospels. It was the primary message. It was the main message that Jesus preached. It was the main message that John the Baptist preached. It's here in the third verse of the book of Acts. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the church. It includes the church. It's not just the church. It's bigger than just quote-unquote heaven. That's not entirely what we're talking about either. The kingdom of God is God's dwelling place and where his presence manifestly is. That's why when the old prophets would say the glory of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, they're talking about the coming kingdom of God. It is the rule of God over everything. That's the kingdom of God. It is his express dominion. That's the kingdom of God. And there's a sense... When you read the Gospels, and even when you start reading the book of Acts, that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It's here, but it's not here in its entirety. You understand? Jesus has come, and he's broken the ice, and he started, he's inaugurated the kingdom, but the kingdom of God is still growing, and the kingdom of God is still coming to pass. Jesus The word of God says was the firstborn among many brethren. And ever since the day of Pentecost, there have been people being born again into the kingdom. And the kingdom of God has continued to go forward and grow. When Jesus came, he got the kingdom of God started in the earth. And he kicked off everything we know today. And what he had planned next was the mission he was going to give to his church. Let's pick up in verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John, who's that? John the Baptist, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I want to pause there for a minute. I want to make a couple of clarifications that are going to help get your grounding for the entire book of Acts. You ready? There's a geographical location, Jerusalem. I don't want to take for granted that we understand. I know it's been in the news a lot lately, so if you didn't know where Jerusalem was, maybe you've watched the news lately and you've become reacquainted with uh, exactly what Jerusalem is all about. Jerusalem is the capital, the ancient capital of Israel, and If you've got your map with you, you can find Jerusalem. It'd be helpful right now to find Jerusalem because it is the starting point for the entire story of the book of Acts. It's going to become even more significant when we get to the next section of Scripture here in a moment because there's some additional geographical locations. But the one where it all starts is the city of Jerusalem. It's the starting point geographically for what the church is going to become. We'll go to other locations here in just a moment. There's a phrase here that I don't want to read past. The phrase is the promise of the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the promise of the Father. Can someone tell me what in the world Jesus is talking about? Because he just drops that on us like we're supposed to, like, Like we, the reader, we're supposed to just know what he's talking about. What is the promise of the Father? The Holy Ghost. Bonus points, Sister Rita. The Holy Ghost is the promise of the Father. Luke chapter 24. You want me to prove to you? Give you a really good bridge, connecting point between Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. He's talking to some of his disciples. Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are are endued 
with power from on high. John said it like this, John chapter 14, verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. How many days would it be? Ten. Ten days. Not many days. Ten days. And that's exactly what happened. They were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost just ten days later. And it wasn't as though we wouldn't be able to make the connection on our own just because that happened, Brother Cade. Listen to the last words of Simon Peter's message that we have recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise, there it is. Simon Peter is identifying what just happened on the day of Pentecost with the message that Jesus had been telling them about. He says, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, he, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, finally, here in verse 6, we get a question from the apostles. We finally get some words from the apostles in the book called The Acts of the Apostles. Six verses in, we get a question. We get some words from them. But it's kind of disappointing because it appears that they are still stuck in their own way of thinking, their old way of thinking. They ask a question. There's a word in there that we haven't heard yet. We've heard about Jerusalem. Now we hear the word Israel. Israel. What about this Israel place? What about this Israel group? The disciples are still locked into their own way, old way of thinking. They haven't yet had the paradigm shift that needs to happen. They need to see the world with new eyes, but they're not seeing the world the way they should yet. They're still imagining that the kingdom of God is going to come as a political victory. That's what they're asking. Jesus responds to them and he fixes them instead of a political victory. He fixes them on the promise of the infilling of the Spirit. That's why you see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells them very clearly, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's reorienting them and telling them, You guys got to stop getting fixed on this stuff. stuff. You have to get your eyes over here on this stuff. That's not how it's going to happen. It's instead going to happen. They are T minus 10 days out and they still don't get it. It gives me hope. <laughs> it gives me a little bit of hope. I was, I'm cheering for them the whole way, but Sister Danielle gives me hope. Because sometimes I just don't get it and God has to be patient with me. Anybody here feel the same way? <laughs> Thank God that he's patient. He's patient. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, really neat. In addition to being some pretty powerful words from Jesus, it also forms a sort of table of contents for the entire rest of the New Testament. Did you know that? Table of contents. Because you've got, it's locked up in the geographical locations. It starts in Jerusalem. Then it spreads to, to Judea, which if you have a map, you'll be able to find Judea. It's the region immediately around Jerusalem, then it spreads to Samaria, which is north of Judea, and where does it go from there? The uttermost parts of the earth. It's the table of contents for the New Testament, because in chapter 2 of Acts, starts in Jerusalem, it's all locked up in Jerusalem for a little while until about chapter 7, then it spreads out into Judea, then it goes to Samaria. And by the time you're reading through Paul's letters, they're in Ephesus and Galatia and Rome. They're at the furthest reaches of the empire. And it's all right there in the words of Jesus. He explains what's going to happen. He says it's going to start right here and it's going to explode everywhere. It's going to go all over the place, all over the known world. 
Any questions? See Brother Walker looking at the maps. They're colorful. The maps are irresistible. The rest of Acts chapter 1 tells a couple stories. Big story in the rest of Acts chapter 1. Uh, it tells Jesus ascends to heaven. And the disciples start to pick a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus. Had gone and hung himself and killed himself. And now the 12 apostles were down to the 11 apostles. And it was ordained by God that there be 12 of them. So they went through this process. You can read about it in Acts chapter 1. I, I'm not going to go through all that, but there's a process they go through. And they choose a man named Matthias to be the 12th apostle. The upshot of it is Matthias was there. That's what qualified him. Matthias was there. He'd been there when Jesus taught. He'd been there when Jesus did miracles. He'd followed Jesus. He'd been committed and dedicated to following Jesus. And he was there that day in Jerusalem. He was there. That was his testimony. That's what qualified him. And the Holy Ghost chose him to be the 12th apostle. Why? Not because he was the wealthiest. Not because he was the smartest. Not because... He was the most educated, not because he had a particular kind of vocation, but because he'd been faithful. Now that's a message. His faithfulness got him into the inner circle of what God was doing. He got him in on the ground floor of what Jesus was going to do. It's pretty amazing. Acts chapter 2 picks up, and we hear Simon Peter's message. The Holy Ghost is poured out in those first few, few verses. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There was cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of them, and they spake with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance and enabled them to do so. The Holy Ghost is poured out. Everybody, 120 people that are in attendance poured out on everybody. This is the promise of the Father. And they spill out onto the streets in Jerusalem, and it's about the third hour of the day. What was the third hour of the day? Nine. Nine a.m. Nine a.m. You can do a whole study about how Jewish people, they track time differently. If you know anything about the way they do Sabbath, Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday. It's just different. Goes, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, but that's another lesson for another time. Third hour of the day is about 9 o'clock in the morning. They're pouring out into the street of Jerusalem. They're speaking in tongues. People are confused. They don't know what in the world. People who see them are confused. They don't know what's going on. It's important to understand that they had no New Testament. Those last 27 books in your Bible, they don't have any of those at this point. The only thing they have is the 39 books at the beginning, the Old Testament. And so they're trying to make sense of everything that's going on because it's brand new. And the people start to ask questions. So Simon Peter starts preaching. You know the four questions they asked? You can look and you can find the, the literal question marks in Acts chapter 2. There's four questions that the people ask. Here they are. Verse 7, who are these people? This is my paraphrase, I'm sorry. This is not King James. Who are these people? Verse 8, how is this happening? Verse 12, what does this mean? Verse 37, what must I do? If we'll get those four questions to start flowing in our gatherings, if we'll have people amongst us that start asking those kind of questions, there'll be revival. You would talk about being apostolic. Those are the kind of questions have to be welcome in church. Not just in church, but when, we're, when the church is out of the building, too. Those are the kind of questions that we, we need to expect to interact with. The people, ha people haven't changed. People haven't changed. People still ask the same kind of questions, Brother Cade. Who are these people? How is this possible? What does this mean? What must I do? They still ask those questions. If we're listening, they may not say those exact words, but they're asking the same questions. 
So Simon Peter stands up and he starts to preach. And he's preaching, and he's only preaching from the Old Testament, isn't he? He's only preaching from the Old Testament. What two Old Testament people are named in his message? David? Is Moses mentioned? Joel. Joel. So Simon Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and it's important. It's really important for us to notice he's not just whipping up a new message. He's not just pulling this out of a hat. He's grounding his message in the Old Testament, in what God has already done, the promises of God from the Old Covenant. He is bringing those out, and he's not just cherry-picking a couple verses, but he's preaching from the prophets. He's going uh, especially to Joel chapter 2, and then he's not, he's not just relying, leaning so heavy on Joel, but he's also in David, and he's in the Psalms. And he's pulling from all these different places in the Old Testament to where there is a composite picture that God is very clearly doing something. This is not a new message. This is just the continuation of the plan of God from the old days. And now he's doing a new thing. And he's poured out his spirit on us. And the people ask those questions. The last question they ask is in verse 37. What must I do? Peter gives the answer that is one of those cornerstone verses in verse 38 and 39. It says you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you shall be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise, the promise of the Father is to you and to your children. Everyone that the Lord will call. Now, we, the reason I've taken time tonight and the reason Bishop set us out on a journey through Acts is because this is absolutely foundational. This is the kind of things that win souls. Do you have to teach it the way I've taught it? Absolutely not. Do you have to use some of the same words and same examples that I've used? Absolutely not. But the material and an understanding of it is so important. It is the message that people are looking for. And if they would understand it, they're going to understand it because someone sets down and explains it to them and takes time with them. These are, the, these are things that you don't have to have a PhD in Bible. These are things that we can, we can read the Bible together. We can slow down long enough to notice and make these connections and say, there was a promise that God wants to give to you. There's a gift that God wants to give to you. It's the kind of thing that can absolutely change someone's life. Then at the end of chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, you can study these things out. These are, we could spend an entire night just on these first, these seven or eight verses because it tells us after the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the people of God went and they started to live life together. And it started to shape their way of life. This experience, this new birth experience they'd had starts to shape their way of life. And we need to model ourselves after that. Because it is the biblical apostolic example. Not just so that we are apostolic in doctrine, but so that we are apostolic in life. And some of that starts even the same day that they're initially filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, before we go tonight, I want to give you a message for tonight. We've kind of, like I said, we've kind of gone on a forced march through the first two chapters, and I've just tried to maybe just ignite your imagination and whet your appetite for some of God's word and, and maybe set you up for the entire book of Acts because now maybe you have a really good grounding. Hopefully, maybe uh, you have a really good grounding of what exactly is going to take place uh, from there on in the book of Acts. But I'd like to give you tonight in the form of just a devotion that leads us to a time of prayer and applying what God's word has for us. I, I want to turn your attention. If you've got your Bible, I would like for you to open it up and actually look at it with me. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. And I, everything I'm about to do in just the next few minutes, I want to be absolutely clear and tell you that, that this is something that you can do 
this is something that you can do on your own. This is something that can be the product of your time in God's word. Uh, that you can read a passage and you can start to apply it and pray over it and be challenged by it. And it's something that can happen not just in these four walls. It can happen anywhere and any place you sit down with a Bible and have time to pray over God's word and hear it and see it for yourself. Right after Luke summarizes the day of Pentecost at the end of Acts chapter 2, he starts to tell us the story of, of what actually happened after the Holy Ghost was poured out. In Acts chapter 3, gives us a real-life account of an event, and I want to read it to you. This is one of the very first passages that I can distinctly recall learning about in Sunday school. I don't know why. I can tell you that it was at the House Springs Church, and I don't remember who the teacher was, but I can remember learning this story, and it's one of my earliest. I can just remember it so crystal clear. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together at the, to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, it's Gate Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who, and it, literally, you could read it, it, they, it dawned on them that it was him who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The devotional thought that I want to share with you tonight is, is extracted from that fifth verse of Acts chapter 3, and it's that phrase, expecting to receive, expecting to receive. The story that we just read begins as the apostles went at the, to the temple at the hour of prayer. It was about 3 p.m., it was common that at the entrances of places of worship like this, there was a man that was crippled from birth, and he was begging for alms and for charity at the beautiful gate of the temple. And there's a striking statement that appears when the man starts to address Peter and John. Peter and John look at the man, and Peter looks directly at him, and he tells the man, look at us. Look at us. And this is very important. This is very important. Why? Because it's right in line with the way that Jesus performed miracles. Did you know that Jesus didn't make a habit out of performing miracles and doing works in people's life who weren't paying any attention to him? That seems really simple, doesn't it? But that's a big revelation. If I want God to do something in my life, I need to be paying attention. I can't be drifting off. I can't move on to the next thing. I can't be distracted by this or that. But if I want a move of God in my life, I need to be paying attention to him. In this way, Simon Peter is very like his master. Because in this first interaction after the day of Pentecost, they come up on this crippled man at Gate Beautiful at the temple. And the Man starts to ask for charity from them. He's wanting some money. He's wanting some financial assistance. It's his only way to make a living. It's his only way to live. And Simon Peter says, look at us. Because he saw Jesus do it so many times. He knows that there is a spiritual principle that in order to receive something from God, you have to be paying attention to what God's doing. Jesus did this. Jesus always captivated the attention of the people that he wanted to heal. He always directed them to focus on him. How can we put this into our modern context? How, how can this challenge us today, just these few words? Some of us are very connected to the church. Some people attend very regularly. But I don't know how else to say it. Sometimes people's lives don't show a lot of evidence that God's at work. And so when we come to church... And we hear some variation of that direction 
where God is saying collectively to us, look at me. Pay attention to what's going on. Let's move out of the place that we're at. Let's find a place where we can worship. Let's lift up our hands. Let's use our voice and sing. Let's find somebody to pray with. Let's kneel down where we are. Let's do whatever is appropriate in that moment to pay attention to what God is doing. It's not just the service leader on a power trip. It's not just the preacher preaching for a response. It's the fact that we have somebody that's leading us in whatever moment that is that understands this spiritual principle that Peter understood. That in order to receive something from God, we're going to have to pay attention to what he's doing. It's the service leader begging with you, pleading with you, saying, won't you receive something from God today? Won't you just see what God might do in your life? It might just cost you a little bit of your attention, attention, but it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely necessary. I'm only going to talk for a few moments longer tonight, but in those few minutes, I, I think that God can do a miracle in our mind. I think God can do a miracle in our mind. And I think that we need, before we go any further, and I, I promise you, I'm just going to go a couple more minutes because your time is very valuable, and I know it's Wednesday night, but can we lift up our hands right now and just put into practice what we've talked about, looking at the Lord and say, Lord, fix my attention on you right now. Lord, whatever I may be drifting into, whatever I may be distracted by, whatever my mind may be occupied with, God, I want to push all that aside for just the next few minutes, and I want you to do a miracle in my mind. I want you to help me grow. I want to be more like you. I want to be fed from your word, and I I want to be led by your spirit. Lord, do it and do it in our lives powerfully in these next few minutes. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we focus on you. I told you I was going to focus on those words, expecting to receive, expecting to receive. There's something powerful about expectation. Expectancy in this story moves two directions. And here's the two directions that I see expectancy moving in Acts chapter 3. The first is the expectancy of the crippled man. The crippled man laying at Gate Beautiful expected to receive something from Peter and John. He saw these men walking up to him. Maybe they had a charitable look to them. Maybe they looked like they had something to spare that they could give him. But no matter what it is, maybe they had given something to him before, the last time they had come through. But no matter why... This man expected to receive something from them in the form of financial remuneration. He expected some kind of money, some kind of alms, some kind of charity. This was what he normally received from people entering the temple. This was his everyday existence. He would lay at the temple and people would come by, they'd walk through, and as they saw him, they would take pity on him and they would give him some kind of thing that would help him get through another day. That was what he expected. That was his existence. That was all his experience had ever taught him. His expectation was shaped by past experiences. The second way that expectation flows in this story is out of Peter and John. Peter and John entered the picture with a different expectation. Brother Burke, Peter and John expected to see a miracle. They expected that the words of Jesus were true, greater works than these shall ye do. Peter and John expected that signs and wonders were going to follow them because they were believers. Their expectancy wasn't based on their past experiences. Their expectation was shaped by what they knew was possible. And we can either decide to be in one of those two camps tonight. I'm talking about a miracle in our mind, and I'm talking about expecting to receive. We will exit this building living in one of these two categories that I've just described to you. Either our expectation is going to be shaped on what has always happened and what the past holds, or your expectation will be shaped by what you know is possible in God. What is the, the hinge that swings on that's really, truly going to decide which category you fall into? I'm glad you asked. It wasn't that the apostles were superhuman. 
It wasn't that the beggar was somehow less than. It has nothing to do with wealth, nothing to do with status, intellect, social class, education, occupation. Those things really aren't factored in at all. The difference wasn't even that they'd heard about Jesus and this guy hadn't. Because this beggar probably had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Because we know that everything that happened in Jerusalem was not done in a corner. He probably had some knowledge of who Jesus was and what his message was and what he was all about. But the difference that changed the expectation was that the apostles had a revelation of the power of the name of Jesus. Brother Dustin, how do you know that? It's right there in the text. Because he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I'm here to tell you that there is power in the, there is something about that name. There's something about that name, and it ought to shape your expectation. When you get a hold of a revelation of the power of the name of Jesus, no more does your expectations have to be rooted in what the past holds. But you can start to dream about what is possible in God when you get a revelation of how powerful the name of Jesus is. It changes everything. Changes everything. How do I know that? Because these were the guys that were hiding just a few weeks ago. They were hiding and they were afraid because they thought their master had been killed and that the game was over. But when Jesus came out of that grave and they knew for certain that he had won the victory, they knew there was something about that name. There was something about the person, the man, Jesus Christ. It was, listen, the name of Jesus isn't a magic word. It's not open sesame, but it's connected to who Jesus is. And when we call on the name of Jesus, we're calling on the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus. When Peter said those words, that's what decided which category he was going to fall into that day. Because it reveals to us that he had a knowledge of the name of Jesus. The power wasn't in their personality. The power wasn't in their popularity. The power wasn't in their poverty. They didn't have any gold or silver. The power was in the name of Jesus. And when you know the name of Jesus, and you know that it's available, it changes the way we act. It changes the way we interact not just the knowledge of the name of Jesus, it's faith in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 3 verse 16, we didn't read it, but it's a few verses later. They're kind of getting called onto the carpet for what happened with this lame man at Gate Beautiful. And what's the testimony of, si of Simon Peter and John? They say, through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. When you don't just know the name of Jesus, but you have trust in the name of Jesus. There's something powerful that happens. And I'm talking about not just faith and not just knowledge, but we also see an element of boldness. Boldness. Now, this is what gets us out of our comfort zone because the first two things I've named to you, knowledge and faith, those are things that happen on the inside, right? But when we start talking about boldness, it gets a little different because now all of a sudden we're talking about action. That's why they called acts of the apostles. They didn't call it thoughts of the apostles. They don't call it philosophy of the apostles. It's the acts of the apostles. What is it that makes it go from being the thoughts of the apostles to the acts of the apostles? In a word, boldness. Actually making a move. They saw a man with a need. They saw he was expecting something. Now, his expectation was off. He was expecting to receive some money. He, the, the brother wanted a couple coins. His expectation was off. But hear me, that's how powerful expectation is. That's how powerful expectation is. That even when his expectation was off base, it still opened the door for the miraculous. In that moment, they saw that he was expecting to receive. They stepped out in boldness. Because they knew 
what the next chapter says, Acts chapter 4, what you're going to read tomorrow probably. There's not salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Last thing is that they had the wisdom that they needed. They knew how to recognize the need. They saw the opportunity. And you know what? They saw that he was expecting to receive. They knew he was expecting money. You know what they didn't do? They didn't come and be like, you big doofus. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you know what we can do for you? That wouldn't have been very wise. It would have been stupid. The door would have been shut. His expectation would have withered up. But they saw that there was just a, a seed of expectation. And they had the wisdom and the boldness to know exactly how to interact with it and what to do. As the musicians come, here's what it really boils down to. Here's what it really comes down to. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Brothers and sisters, that must be our mantra. That must be our motivator of the apostolic church. Whatever we do in word or in deed, do all of it in the name of Jesus. Can I put it like this? That's God's expectation of us. We pray in the name of Jesus. We baptize in the name of Jesus. We worship in the name of Jesus. We call the name of Jesus over our family's possible compartment of our life. And as we all stand, that's why, that's why our prayer needs to be this right now. God, mature my expectations. Lord, I want my expectations. Can we raise our hands and, and take on a posture of prayer in the house of the Lord right now and just pray something like this? Lord, open my eyes and let me see the world as you see it. Lord, I don't want to be so rooted and, and dug down into my past that my expectations are stalled out. But Lord, I want to expect great things. I want my expectations to be something that's connected to the possibilities that you have in store for my life. Can we pray that right now? And can we gather up around these altars for just a few moments on this Wednesday night? Because I feel like the Holy Ghost wants to challenge us and say, you know what? I want to do miracles and signs and wonders. And there's things I want to do in your life. And there's ways that I want to minister through you. But what if it all came down to our expectations? you start to move out of where you are right now maybe God is saying to you right now he's saying look at us look at me maybe he's trying to get your attention can you find a place to kneel down right now can you find a place to pray and have a solemn sobering moment with God and say God my expectations